Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Genzel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is an interview series in which I talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From cult movie directors to character actors, from seasoned veterans to brilliant newcomers, from celebrated artists to filmmakers who haven't received the recognition they deserve, these folks have lots of fascinating stories to tell. Today's guest is screenwriter John Orloff, who worked with German director Roland Emmerich on the movie Anonymous, a very complex and fascinating historical drama about the theory that William Shakespeare may not be the author of the works of William Shakespeare. Instead, the movie claims that the Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, wrote famous plays like Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet, and that through complex political scheming he wasn't able to receive credit for them, but instead a hapless young actor, William Shakespeare, served as a front for him. In our interview, John discusses the long process of developing the script, which began with a completely different take on Shakespeare. He talks about his collaboration with Roland Emmerich, which added many new elements to the story, and about the intricate structure of the film, which Orloff himself says may be a little bit too complicated. He discusses the angry reactions and reviews the movie received, and he talks about why he believes that Shakespeare isn't the author of the plays, and why discussing the authorship issue is a worthwhile debate. John also discusses some of the other projects he's worked on, like the Band of Brother miniseries, which was produced by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, and he talks about some of the guiding themes of his work. The interview was done in connection with our Lichtspielplatz podcast on Anonymous, so if you speak German, check out episode number 40 of our Lichtspielplatz podcast with an in-depth discussion of the film and its themes. You can find us at TalkingPicturesPodcast.com. So here is Talking Pictures with screenwriter John Orloff. I first um, learned about the whole Shakespeare authorship issue sometime in the 90s. Um, and uh, at the time, I was working in advertising, um, making TV commercials as, as like a crew member, doing just anything. And uh, I met my now wife. Um, who at the time was working at HBO in, in the late 90s. And she would bring home these scripts. And, and at the time, in particular, in the late 90s, HBO was making a lot of sort of historical movies. You know, they, they would make a movie about uh, Don King, the American boxer guy, or... Uh, just just biopic after biopic after biopic. So Paige, my, my now wife, would bring home these scripts that, that tended to be sort of nonfiction based. And um, I read them and they weren't terribly good, some of them. So I thought, well, I could write a script. I mean, I had gone to UCLA film school. I had studied film but I was working in advertising and had no idea how to become a filmmaker. Anyway, so I, I sort of uh, pitched my wife the, the Shakespeare authorship issue, and, and she said, well, you know, you got nothing to lose. Why not write it? So that was probably in like 95 or 96, I want to say. And um, it took me a couple of years to write. I did just a ton of research. I love research. And yeah, and I, I, I finally finished it around 98. And about 
one of my great, like one of my first big breakthrough ideas was I'm going to make William Shakespeare young and sexy. And that had never been done before. And literally, I finished the script, and two months later, Shakespeare in Love came out <laughs> with the young, sexy Shakespeare. Um, so yeah, so that's so. So I wrote it in, in the late '90s, uh, and then I got very lucky. Somebody who worked for Tom Hanks uh, read the script and really liked it, and. Uh, had me come in for a meeting. And while obviously uh, that group of people never made the movie, they really liked me. And they ended up hiring me um, to write on Band of Brothers, which was my mm -hmm. my first paying gig as a writer. So yeah, so that's that's sort of the, the, the background of the script. And then uh, pretty much nothing happened for four or five years um, until I got a phone call from my agent, who is also Roland Emmerich's agent. Mm -hmm. And Roland was looking for a writer for a film called The Day After Tomorrow. And he wanted to meet with me. So I went to his office and Roland starts talking about um, The Day After Tomorrow. You know, we have these, we have, it's the winter and we have the snow and it's, it's Fifth Avenue. And you know, this giant boat goes down to Fifth Avenue and the snow and he's going on and on and on. And, and I said to him, wow, that, that, that sounds awesome, Roland, but, but that's not, I don't know how to write that kind of movie. Uh, there's really much better guys to, to write that kind of movie. And I don't think uh, Roland hears that very often. Um, somebody saying, no, I don't want to write your movie. Um, and he was sort of surprised. And he sort of went, really? Hmm. Well, what else have you written? And so I said, yeah, what the fuck? I'll, I'll just uh, pitch him my uh, 17th, 16th century Elizabethan melodrama. <laughs> so I, I pitched Roland Emmerich my 16th century Elizabethan melodrama and he asked to read it and two weeks later um, he purchased it 100% with his own money <laughs> wow it is a, a very unusual project for, for Roland Emmerich although I used to joke that you know he this is the guy who's destroyed the White House and the Chrysler Building and New York and half the Earth, and now he's destroying the Shakespeare biography. <laughs> exactly. No, no, completely, completely. Um, there's actually a really, uh, in the sort of Shakespeare um, dialogue about who wrote the, the plays, there's actually a lot of Germans who got very into it as well. Uh, so there's a whole... Uh, German school of thought about the the Shakespeare authorship question. Mm -hmm. um, so he might have uh, pinged into that. And you know the the, the thing about Roland is uh, he is a very very smart man, very intellectual. Uh, his movies might not always be that, uh, 
but that's intentional. Mm. You know, he's just, he, he makes the movies he wants to make, you know? So, yeah, so that's how it started. So once, once he uh, bought the script, um, he started to do his own reading and his own research. And because uh, my original script was pretty different, um, 50% the same, excuse me, and 50% and, and new uh, that, that Roland brought to it. So, yeah, so then we spent a couple of years, uh, me rewriting it, because um, as I'm sure you've noticed, if you've seen the film, it's a very complicated structure, mm -hmm. slightly too complicated, uh, I think. Um, you have to really watch the movie once more than once to really understand a lot of the subplots and who's who. Yeah, so, so so the movie really evolved with, with Roland's input, becoming a lot more political. Um, most of the political elements were not in the original draft. Mm -hmm. Interesting, because I, I was going to ask how the movie um, evolved, and you said that you had a young and sexy Shakespeare in your first version, and I mean, the Shakespeare yeah. in... The, the movie now is anything but I mean, he's a he's a drunken buffoon basically yeah yeah you know again it it evolved you know um you know roland is really into collaboration and i'm really into it and and so it just it just grew i mean the first thing that roland really um brought to it was the succession issue like who would rule after Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in my original draft, the script was originally called Soul of the Age, uh, which is what Ben Jonson called Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. He called Shakespeare the Soul of the Age. And so uh, Soul of the Age was much more just about the relationship between William Shakespeare and Edward de Vere, with Elizabeth having a much reduced role And then Roland read about um, the succession issue that possibly Elizabeth was the parent of the Earl of Essex, which is why the Earl of Essex started the Essex Rebellion. And possibly Elizabeth was the parent of Edward de Vere, blah, blah, blah. I never bought that historically in any way, shape or form, but it's a movie. And um, it was really interesting dramatically. Mm -hmm. That said, it became one of the number one things that people would point out about why our movie was wrong about everything, <laughs> you know. Um, so that, that, that would be the biggest change, I think, that, that Roland brought to the story was, you know, let's make it really about the succession and who is going to be king once elizabeth dies mm. that that was the the biggest thing that roland came up with story-wise yeah i read that this is some kind of theory that's that's floating around but it's less popular than the than the edward de vere theories i think it's called the prince tudor theory yes like exactly that. So I, uh, yeah 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 i i don't i don't I don't think it's impossible. 
Um, uh, but I don't think it's likely. I, I mean, listen, Elizabeth had sex. I mean, you know, it's possible she had children. You know, I mean, Henry VIII had bastards. I mean, they all had bastards. Um, so it's definitely not impossible. And the, and the whole idea of the virgin queen is total bullshit. She, she had lovers. But do I think that De Vere and Essex were her kids? Eh, probably not. I, 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 don't, I don't believe that. And, and actually, even over time, I've become more of what's called a group theorist, meaning uh, I don't think it was just De Vere. I, I think it was a group of people that, that were working at the time, you know, pr creating these plays. And I am sure De Vere had a lot to do with it. Um, personally, I think that, but not specifically necessarily how we have it in the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I never really took the movie for a fact anyway. Um, I think, like you said, it, it makes dramatical sense um, to have all these, uh, like these relationships in the movie. Um, people are at odds. And in, in a way, I think that, I, I don't know if that was your intention, Um the film itself feels like a, a Shakespearean play with all the, oh. you know, the murder and the intrigue and the there's incest and everything. Exactly. You totally hit the nail on the head. It is supposed to be an Elizabethan play, you know, with with all those things you just said, incest. I mean, that's classic. Right. You know, I'm all that stuff. That's how I could justify some of those things in my own head. And also by saying, you know, look, this this really kind of drove me crazy because I, I don't know how much you clearly did some research. Thank, thank you. But it was not well received, the movie. Mm. You know, I mean, people were really, really angry. I mean, I, I was compared to a Holocaust denier in the New York Times. In the New York Times, I was compared to a Holocaust denier. So people got you know, really pissed off, um, way more than we were expecting. Um, and I've totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, I know what I was going to say. I know what I was going to say was, you know, it's not history. It's a movie. And by the way, if you know anything about Shakespeare's history plays, they're not history either. He's changing dates. He's putting people in locations. They're not really there at the time. He's got dead people talking when they're, you know, he does the same stuff, Shakespeare. You know, all of those history plays are filled with inaccuracies that helped the drama. And so we sort of took that as a little bit of a, of a guiding cue, you know. And like you said, we wanted to make a big, loud Elizabethan drama. Hmm. Yeah, I think some people, I don't know, they kind of confuse movies with sort of a history lesson or something. Whereas I don't think I don't yeah. go to the movies for facts or if I seek any truth in them, it's 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 supposed to be emotional truth. That kind of truth exactly. that a dramatist um, would seek uh, something about the exactly. human condition or trying to Precisely. make a point. To me, the movie is about the artistic experience. It's not about who wrote the plays. It's about what it is to be an artist. Um, and, and that's what 
interested me in it. You know, I mean, but, but what's fascinating is nobody was pissed off about Shakespeare in love because just nothing in that movie was true. Nothing. Mm. But it was a romantic comedy and it was all good. Whereas I read some quote from Judy Dench who had played Elizabeth in Shakespeare in Love and she said something about our movie, you know, and just just excoriated it, you know. Mm. Basically said our movie was like the spawn of the devil. I, I don't remember the exact <laughs> words, but uh, yeah, people got really pissed off. But could that have to do something with the marketing? Um, because in, in, in my research, I found a lot of discussion um, and both you and Roland Emmerich discuss the ideas of you know Shakespeare's authorship very seriously um, and talked about how the movie sort of uh, depicts these ideas and those ideas and everything so um, and I, I think people sort of reacted to it um, in, in a way as if they were supposed to be persuaded of something whereas with Shakespeare in love um, it was clear from the get-go that this is sort of a fantasy you know just a play with um, right. well-known figures Well, I mean, there's a lot of people who believe Shakespeare did not write the plays, you know, and a lot of uh, well-regarded people. Um, I, I am one of those people. So is Roland. So, you know, we did discuss the film as, as positing a, a legitimate question of, um, you know, who wrote the plays I really, we really had no idea how pissed off people would be. We we just had no idea. Uh, there was, I, I think, one of the mistakes they made was the one sheet said, um, I actually have it over there, was Shakespeare a fraud? You know, I, I think that was a little too aggressive and, you know, um, in your face. Interestingly, though, I mean, the film got the best reviews from some people like i mean roger ebert loved the film mm. said he didn't agree with a moment of it but he loved the film um which was fine with me you know um mm. yeah so you know we wanted to have a real conversation uh about who wrote the plays it's an interesting conversation to have because it, it, when you open that conversation you're opening up a wider conversation about art and where does art come from and how does one become an artist and where does one get inspiration? And that is at the end of the day, the basis of the anti Stratfordian theory, right? Like, like the people who don't think Shakespeare wrote the plays think that because they don't think that's how art works, right? Yeah. Uh, meaning, you know, listen, I, I, not a lot of people know this, but the very last book that Mark Twain ever wrote was a very small volume. I think it was published like 1909, 1910. And the whole book is why Shakespeare did not write the plays, And his, uh, it's called Is Shakespeare Dead? That's, that's the title of the book. And his basic thesis was, look, 
I, Mark Twain, could not have been, uh, uh, could not have written about the Mississippi had I not been a Mississippi River pilot. That's why it's so accurate. And there is no way you can convince me, Mark Twain, that the Glover's son from Stratford, who may not even have spoken the same English as people in London, would have had the education to write the plays. Because whoever wrote the plays absolutely spoke Latin, spoke French, spoke Italian, was a lawyer. I'll just stop with those four things. Everybody agrees on those things. Please explain to me how Shakespeare was any of those things. You know, where did he learn Latin? Where did he learn Greek? Where did he learn French? Where did he learn Italian? Did he ever go to Italy? Not that we know of, but what, 12 of the plays are set in Italy and they're geographically accurate. So, so that's my point. So you start, hmm. it's about where does art come from, right? So that's why we had that kind of conversation of saying, no, it's really possible he didn't write the plays, you know? Yeah, but 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 people were not amused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a way, I can understand it because he was sort of slaughtering a holy cow, um, especially exactly. for you know students of literature. Um, and actually, I well, think. And it, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, no, I was going to say that I think this is one of the reasons that I find this movie so interesting because it's controversial i mean that it reminds me of a time when movies uh when a lot of movies were controversial and opened up the discussion and that was a good thing um right, right. there was something you actually went to a movie in order to be challenged and in order to discuss and sometimes you know <laughs> those get were the angry days and yeah <laughs> the, the new hollywood era is my favorite era yeah. of american filmmaking and you have a lot of movies like this back then and nowadays well not so much and in terms of anonymous i I think the the question of who wrote it or um, is this the person or is that the person is less interesting than what you just said. Why is it interesting? Why um, are we even talking about this? What, what, what does that do to um, our perception of the work? Right, exactly. And, and, and that was one of the things that really interested me because we know so little about the real Shakespeare. I mean, if you read that, 400 page biography of Shakespeare. It is three pages of facts and 397 pages of guesswork. No, no, it's, it's true. I mean, we really know nothing about the guy. I mean, for example, just listen to this. Do you know that there is not a single piece of paper that has ever been found written by William Shakespeare? Well, I heard it in the research. Um, yeah, I did. I mean, not a single yeah. piece of paper, you know. Yeah. So, 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 how somebody becomes a writer is fascinating to me. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the, the the handwriting, I would just for the sake of argument, I would say, well, maybe he didn't write it down himself. Maybe he dictated it to somebody, which I think a writer could do. Yeah, but there's no letter to his wife. He's living in London. His wife is in Stratford, theoretically. No letter. 
nothing, <laughs> you know? Um, and his, his children were illiterate. He didn't teach his children how to write. That's kind of odd, don't you think? <laughs> you know, literally his daughter as an adult signed her name with an X. His son didn't live to adulthood, so, so we don't know um, whether he was educated or not. But what I found was, and, and, and I think particularly in America or, or English-speaking languages, pretty much Shakespeare is the most common read author in schools in the English-speaking world, right? Like, everybody reads Romeo and Juliet at some point in school. They don't, in America... We have uh, The Great Gatsby, but they probably don't read The Great Gatsby in England, you know, or what, but everybody reads Romeo and Juliet and maybe Macbeth. And so everybody has a personal relationship with Shakespeare. And it turns out everybody has a personal relationship with the idea of Shakespeare as anyone who can become a genius. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like I relate to Shakespeare because I'm a poor person from nowhere. And maybe if I write really well, I can become Shakespeare. You know, so everybody I discovered had a really intense personal relationship with William Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Unlike, say, you know, if, if, if you saw Amadeus your relationship to Mozart is, is very different. And obviously 80% of that movie is made up as well, you know, but it's brilliant and it's wonderful and it explores, you know, similar issues that we do. And, but nobody was pissed off about it, you know? <laughs> I was actually thinking of a quote by, by Shakespeare himself um, from, from Romeo and Juliet, um, which says what's in a name. Um, that what we right. call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. So, um, and that's ultimately, you know, true, right? The plays are the plays are the plays, yeah. and they're great. Whoever wrote them, but what I find interesting is if you read a play like Hamlet, and you know the biography of Edward de Vere, the play Hamlet has way deeper meaning than if it's just written by some dude because it's almost autobiographical um hamlet um in terms of uh the relationships between hamlet and um ophelia and uh uh what's what's the father-in-law polonius uh that's literally de Vere his wife, Anne, and William Cecil. Um, and, you know, equally, you can go into other of the, of, of the plays, and rather than just saying that idea came out of thin air, you go, oh, wow, something just like that happened in Edward de Vere's life. That's interesting, you know? Um, so I find that interesting. Again, where does art come from? Does it come out of the ether, which one sort of has to believe if Shakespeare wrote the plays? Mm 
or does it come from life experiences you know i think the question of um you know authorship or um who the person is who actually wrote something um that's interestingly something that is also very common in in your world or our world the movie world i think um because when you look at the the credits of a lot of films you see names of people that well maybe they they don't really have anything to do with the film because you know the script has been rewritten so often and then sometimes the script has been written by somebody who's not even uh, in the credits or you know you have uncredited rewrites yeah. this kind of thing so um kind of find it interesting because um i mean with shakespeare people really care a lot about who wrote this and and you know with movies usually it's something that you know it's it's not discussed at all <laughs> i know i know well that goes back to france and the auteur you know to to you know truffaut and godard creating the mm. auteur theory of filmmaking you know i think uh did a great disservice i mean that's not to say there aren't auteurs like kurosawa or kubrick or but you know the majority of of studio films are not made by auteurs you know <laughs> um yeah i was you know on anonymous i was i was really lucky you know i was the only guy the whole time and and roland and i developed a very close friendship that still exists. I'm, I'm writing something for him right now, a, a, another project. And, mm -hmm. um, I was on set for the, for the whole filming, uh, which not many directors allow. Most directors of Roland's stature do not want the screenwriter on set specifically. They do not want the screenwriter on set. And do you know why? Well, they're afraid that the writer knows more about the film than they do. You just won. Exactly <laughs> right. And in fairness, a lot of writers don't know set etiquette and can be dicks and, you know, put their nose mm -hmm. in places they shouldn't be. Um, so I can understand why a lot of writers would not be welcome on sets. But, but I'm not that kind of person. And Roland you know we basically talked after every shot we would kind of huddle together and um say what worked and what didn't work and give ideas uh so I, that was a really incredible experience for me that that writers don't normally get um i was very lucky mm -hmm. um i'd like to talk a little bit about the structure um you oh, already yeah. said that it's a you know kind of a complicated structure and yeah. um, I think it's very interesting <laughs> yeah. because it has four different levels. Um well first of all there's the, the, the framing device, like a modern day um thing. Again there's another yeah. Shakespeare quote I was thinking of that's uh, all the world's a stage and the men right. and women merely players. Exactly. Exactly. That was sort of thought to, you know, that was unintended, not unintended, that is that idea right there in the present day uh, bookends. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we go, God, I can't even remember how many different time periods <laughs> we go into, oh, right, Ben Johnson being arrested, mm -hmm. right? And then Ben Johnson now tells us how he got into this position, right? So we go mm -hmm. back to like the to the 1570s or 80s, 
And then somehow we get into young Elizabeth. I can't even remember how we get to young Elizabeth and young Devere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but know, that's kind of like deeper and deeper um, and, and yeah. into the, the intricacies. I, of... I, I, I mean, at the end of the day, I regret it, I think, because it's just a little too complicated. It's just hard to track if, if you're just seeing the film for the first time and you don't know that much about about the time period. On the other hand, it's kind of cool. <laughs> you know, I mean, I love playing with time and um, that. But with that said, I think ultimately it's just a little too complicated and a little too confusing for its own good. Mm-hmm personally um again my original draft was only two times the movie opened with ben johnson being arrested thrown in jail and he's telling the story in the original version he's telling the story till his jailers i can't remember why to get out of jail for some reason Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's all it is so it's just sort of one flashback of of johnson much like amadeus when he's talking to the priest and we go back and forth similar in my original version uh ben johnson is telling the story and we go back and forth between him in the jail and him telling the story of the 1590s and then when 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 Roland came aboard and we added all the Elizabeth stuff, we then had to add the affair that Elizabeth had with Devere. So that meant we had to go back to that time period, you know. So that's how that got added in. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the the framing device of somebody telling the story. Um, like Ben Johnson in jail. I mean, that's like you said in Amadeus. It's a confession of of Salieri, um, of old Salieri to uh, the priest. Um, in in my version, it didn't stay this way. You didn't know whether Ben Johnson was lying or not. Okay. You didn't know whether the whole story was bullshit, so he could get out of jail. Mm-hmm. Which I think works a little better <laughs> because. <laughs> have out you know of saying it's true maybe it's not true maybe ben was just you know lying to get out of jail Um, uh, but that idea was dropped and Mm -hmm. and the the proscenium thing instead Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean the new york theater instead Mm -hmm. yeah but it's also i think the effect is that um I think people miss this in a way, but the effect is that, okay, this is a stage play that we're, it's a story that we're telling and well, it may or may not be true. And, you know, we're taking some dramatic license because I mean, we're on a stage, we're telling a story. Um, But people didn't, uh, didn't take to it. I mean, you know, the fucking Prince of Wales (laughs) talked about my movie and how awful (laughs) it was, you know, I mean, intense how pissed off people got (laughs) yeah and they couldn't just sort of go with it as you said as just sort of a a elizabethan melodrama you know Mm. um which was a bummer 
And, you know, I thought the performances were really strong um, mm -hmm. all around. Um, I was sad that, that, that uh, some of the actors didn't get a little bit more, um, you know, applause or appreciation for their work. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave in particular was both amazing, I thought, and just wonderful to work with. She had always wanted to play Elizabeth her whole life. She'd been in, you know, she played Mary, Queen of Scots, mm -hmm. in a in a in a version of that story of of Elizabeth killing Mary, but she played Mary, and she'd always wanted to play Elizabeth. So she was very excited uh, mm -hmm. to play Elizabeth in our film. And then obviously her daughter uh, played the younger Elizabeth. Uh, mm -hmm was which was very cool um they really enjoyed doing that together mm. but like reese was amazing and um uh, uh, god his name the guy who played ben johnson i think was just fantastic too oh and the guy who played robert cecil was amazing yeah, yeah the guy's oh, creepy <laughs> oh god he's an amazing actor uh just phenomenal well one of the i think the points that the movie is making is that literature has a special sort of power i mean that's something that is discussed all yes. over again um, when i watch a movie um well if i'm in, in a movie theater obviously i can't take any notes but if i watch it at home i usually hit pause and then i write you know a uh -huh. couple of lines down yeah. um and that happened very often to me during that film um i say well when did words ever win a kingdom that yes kind of discussion. yes um, and then the the end that is the the soul of the age speech by Ben Johnson, yep. which where the original title comes from. Well, again, yep. it reminded me of a, of a Shakespeare line that um, was it not marble nor gilded the, the gilded monuments of princes shall oh, uh -huh. outlive this uh, right. powerful rhyme. Right. Um, right. So this is something that that stays with us. Um, the, the art is actually that which lasts longer than what the political uh, exactly. intrigues and everything. Um, <laughs> And ultimately, that's what the movie is totally about, right? It's it's about that that art, the 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 pen is mightier than the sword, and and art will out. You know, art is is the ultimate um, expression of of humanity. You know, um, yeah, I, I think that's what what the movie is about. My personal favorite line in the film and it was always in there and i'm not going to say it properly um it's when uh, johnson and devere are in the maze the garden maze and, and devere is trying to convince uh, johnson to be his beard and, and and devere says something about how his his plays are political ben johnson And Johnson denies it. And um, Devere says, all art is political. Otherwise, it would just be decoration. And you're not a decorator, are you? Or something like that, you know? I can't remember the exact line, but that's the basic. Yeah. basic all artists all have to something to say. Otherwise, they would yeah. sell shoes. Um, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. yeah, another moment where I hit the pause button and wrote it down. Yeah, that, that's my favorite line of the movie and and it's kind of like me who i am you know like yeah all art is political otherwise it's not art 
you know, mm-hmm. um, it is just decoration. So, yeah. And that's, that's what the movie's about. It's about the intersection of art and politics and, and how one is actually stronger than the other, you know, ultimately. Um, and, and I think we succeeded at that. Clearly you totally got it. You know I mean? I, I think we succeeded at that. And, and I wish people would understand that's what the movie's about, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's about art's place in society. It's not about who wrote Macbeth. It's, it's not about that, you know? Mm. Um, that's the excuse for the movie, you know? Um, that's where we started from. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the things that you wrote are um, actually dealing with um, politics and, well, history and politics. I think that is your, your forte. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's my thing. Definitely. So it was interesting when you say that the first version didn't really have a lot of the political stuff in it. Um, so it's, it's true. It didn't. How it, that evolved. It, it had a little bit. It it definitely had a little bit. Um, but but uh, nothing nothing like it does. And and that's one of the reasons why I embraced Roland's idea, right? Even though I didn't mm-hmm. totally buy the Tudor theory or any of that stuff intellectually i saw that by adding that idea in we could really get into this whole art and politics a little deeper so instantly i had reservations when when roland said yeah yeah i've read this book it's about yeah the prince tudor theory and for a second i was like oh and then and then you know we talked about it more and um i think he was you know was he was right. It, I mean, it made an interesting movie. It, it, it got into these interesting things, you know, that that I found, you know, really exciting. And yeah, most of my work, not always, but but it's interesting. Even <laughs> even my my this movie, Legend of the Guardians, which is this animated movie that um, that uh, Zack Snyder directed. I managed to get in there. There's a whole subtext. Uh, have you seen the film? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a whole subtext about. Right <laughs> there's a whole subtext about um, the reality of war mm-hmm. versus the um, uh, the myth of war, right? With with the older owl character Azelrib, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, trying to explain to the younger owls that reality and myth are different. And that also happens in the third act of Anonymous when the Essex Rebellion fails, right? And it turns out that a real revolution doesn't always go as well as it does in the plays. You know, mm-hmm. that that reality is different than myth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, and then obviously there's a uh, there's some politics in 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 a mighty heart, um, and there's I, I wrote a movie uh, that I've taken my name off of that is also about politics called it's now being called the Last Vermeer, mm-hmm. um, and it's a film about Han von Meegren. Do you know who he is? He was a no. art forger 
um, he was this Dutch uh, true story, 1945, Amsterdam. The hero of of the movie is this Dutch resistance fighter, true story. He's assigned the task of finding collaborators. And specifically in the art world, because as you probably know, a lot of art was stolen from Jews and then sold, blah, 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 blah. So this guy is trying to find who is doing all of that. And he finds this one guy called Han von Negren, who had sold all of these Vermeers to Hermann Goering. All true story. Mm -hmm. So he's arrested for being a collaborator. And um, he says, I'm not a collaborator. I'm a forger. Those weren't real paintings. I forged them. I ripped Herman Goering off. I'm not a collaborator. I'm a hero. So the movie becomes, is that true or not? Um, and again, it's about art and politics. Um, for the first time in my life, I, I took my name off of a project um, because of, of where the movie ended up going uh, in terms of, mm -hmm. of that. But yeah, that's a, a theme that that uh, really uh, excites me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's also the, the, the Band of Brothers episode that you wrote, um, the, the second one, Why We Fight, um, where the yeah. string quartet plays Beethoven at the beginning. Yeah, that that that's the best thing I've ever written um, that hour, um, in my humble opinion. I'm really proud of that. And yeah, it's about art and politics, right? It's about mm -hmm. how can the people who gave us Beethoven give us the Holocaust? How do mm -hmm. those two things exist in the same world, right? Um, and... If you notice, they peppered in the in the episode, they, they actually took out a few of them, are examples of Americans behaving horribly. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there's just to, again to say nobody's clean. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, granted, we weren't doing a Holocaust, yeah. but. If you watch the episode, like uh, Spears is stealing things from people, Lieutenant Spears, you know, he's mm -hmm. he's stealing silver. And I mean, he's a fucking thief, you know. Um, uh, we have the shot where um, they drive by and a French soldier is summarily executing some very young German POWs on the side of the road. Um couple other examples that were cut out i think mm -hmm. um to just say there's a lot of grays you know not everything is black and white there's a lot of grays um but yeah i'm really proud of that episode uh, mm. yeah it is a very moving uh well it's just it's it, it's very haunting and it's uh you know i was I saw it, and I mean, I know all the the images of the concentration camps, and I know the history of of everything. But you know, after that that hour of television, 
it, sort of, it, it, it took me a couple of minutes and then suddenly it hit me and I was crying actually um, afterwards just because, you know, it's it's so intense. Um, yeah. And, and th- th- this question of how is this possible? How could anything that was like not that be possible? That not an uncommon reaction. And, and one of the things that was super cool about it was the fact nobody saw it coming, right? Mm-hmm. You've watched eight episodes. You haven't thought about it at all, right? You haven't even thought about it about Jews really, right? You haven't thought about the Holocaust at all. It's not like you've walked into um, a Schindler's list and you know what you're about to mm. see, right? And so there's that, you know, for 20 minutes, the episode's almost a joke, you know, they're trying to get laid, they're da, 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 da. and then suddenly, boom, you know? Mm. And I think one of the reasons the episode works so well is because you, the audience, have that same coming out of left field what the fuck is this Mm. you know i mean obviously you guess what it is but it still kind of is a sucker punch you know because you weren't expecting it just like they weren't expecting it um and then also i think the the two best i mean I, i loved everybody but the two best directed episodes of band are that episode nine and episode seven, um, uh, both of which were directed by David Frankel. Those are the only two he directed. And I think they're the two best episodes of the show. Seven is the second one in Bastogne where Spears does the run. You know, he runs mm-hmm. across and then he runs back. Remember that scene? Mm-hmm. It's, it's really great. Um mm-hmm. But but uh, David did a fantastic job. That that first shot in the opening, um, I mean, that's all in my script, but I didn't write it as a single shot, you know. So he has that gigantic crane shot that, you know, starts with the Germans playing in the, the quartet and the one-legged guy. All that's in the script. And then, you know, he just comes up in a single shot to see living you know all the guys it was just beautiful you know mm-hmm. the whole episode he just directed beautifully mm-hmm. i kind of I developed did not this feel the same ab- oh go ahead hmm? no yeah. i was gonna say go i did not feel the same about my other episode <laughs> oh okay <laughs> <laughs> okay now i'll have to ask you about this <laughs> what, what was it for the other episode that bothered you <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the director and I had a lot of differences of opinions. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> it came out fine. It, it came out fine. People loved the episode. I would argue that it could have been a hell of a lot better. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, it was weird. I, I I had a really bad experience on that one. Anyway, there it is. So you had a bad experience, but also exactly. one of the best things that you've done, with some, the yeah. thing that you're most proud of. I mean, exactly. both in the same show. Yeah, and, and listen, I, I had a great experience the whole time. It was amazing, and this never, ever happened to me again. I, I was really lucky. Um so I, I wrote episode two, and it wasn't run like a TV show. Um, 
you know, TV shows, there's like a room and you all sit together and you kind of, you know, you know what I mean? You know how those mm-hmm. TV shows work? This was 10 movies. So literally I'm talking to Tom about some other project in 98, late 98. It's, it's a project that never happened. And uh, he suddenly turns to me and he says, because every time I had met with him in the preceding like two months, we'd had like two or three meetings about this other project. And I would say to him, you know, Tom, I am a huge World War II fan. And if you ever need any writers on that, I I would love to be part of it. And he's like, no, 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 we're going to have one writer. He's going to do the whole thing. It's like, okay, cool. So I'm in this meeting and he suddenly turns to me and he says, you still want to write for Band of Brothers? And I go, uh, yeah. <laughs> and he says, you want to write the D-Day episode? And I go, uh, okay. <laughs> I'm hired to write the D-Day episode. Now remember, this is my first paying job as a screenwriter. And I am writing the D-Day episode for Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg two years after Saving Private Ryan was made. I was really intimidated. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so I I write the script, agonizing, send it to Tom, and in the original draft, uh, when the guys are in the C-47 in the plane, uh, in, in the original version I wrote, uh, they were not silent. They were singing songs, which is what they really did. Um, maybe not all of them, but, but a lot of them did. They, would, they, they sang songs to try to get their morale up, right? So I had them singing some song. And then everything kind of as is. And so Tom calls me up and he says... I read your script. Okay. It's like, Stephen read it too. He doesn't like the singing. I'm like, okay, I'll take out the singing. What else? That's it. You want to do another one? I go, uh, okay. How about the concentration camp episode? Uh, okay. Now, remember, <laughs> Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, Schindler's List. So... <laughs> So now <laughs> you thought I was intimidated before. Now I'm writing episode nine, which was super hard because uh, uh, actually, unlike almost any other part of the show, most of that comes from me uh, because uh, the guys didn't talk to Stephen Ambrose about uh it was called Landsberg. It was a satellite of Dachau. Uh, they wouldn't talk about Landsberg. So it's only like a paragraph in, in, in the book. So it was really hard. I, I spent weeks and weeks trying to interview the guys and trying to get more and learning more and blah, 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 blah. Finally write it. I can't even tell you how stressed I am. And in it, when the guys come to... Uh, open up the camp 
in my original draft, they had put up uh, an American flag, which which also happened. The, the the prisoners found things, you know, and and would build or sew a flag to welcome their liberators. So turn in the script. A week or two goes by. I get a phone call from Tom. Stephen read the script. He wept. He only wants you to take the flag out. Take out the flag, and then we're done. <laughs> and so my two first drafts were basically the shooting drafts for those two episodes. Now, that has never happened to me again, obviously. <laughs> and uh. most of the other scripts in bands were clusterfucks and were rewritten by this writer and rewritten by that writer. I'm the only writer who wasn't rewritten on band. Um, episode one, I don't know how many different writers took a whack at it. Uh, episode three was just Max. No, nobody rewrote Max. Episode four was Bruce, Graham, Eric. Episode five was mostly Eric. I mean, anyway, episode six, mm. oh, God, that was another a million people writing on it. Um, so, yeah, it was a really um, intense experience. Never to be repeated by, by the way. I've never had, oh, I don't have any notes for you ever. <laughs> um, yeah, boy, was I spoiled. <laughs> it's kind of the, the, the dream of every writer. Oh. To say, yeah, this is perfect. Don't change a thing. <laughs> From Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, it was just like, <laughs> it was, I still can't believe it sometimes, you know? I mean, it's like, it's like magic, you know? That's mm. yeah, amazing. Uh, and, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm I, you know, and I'm working with them now. I, we're, we're doing uh, Masters of the Air, um, mm -hmm. which is like the third, you know, Band of Brothers, the Pacific, and now Masters of the Air. And I've spent seven years working on it with Tom and Steven. Wow. So, yeah. It's going to be very different from band, very different process, going to be a very different show. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been, I've, it's, it's kind of cool, you know. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I've worked with, with Tom off and on for 22 years, you know. Wow. Yeah, no, it's cool. I mean, obviously not everything is, well, the only thing that's gotten made that I've worked on with him was band, but I've mm -hmm. written three other scripts for him, four other scripts for him. Um, and then Masters, Jesus, I've written 800 pages so far. You have another project um, coming up. I don't know what the the, the, um, the status on that one is, uh, the story of the Watergate. Um, uh, yeah, it did not happen. It didn't um, happen. Oh, it didn't? It, no, I mean, I, I wrote three scripts um, and they decided not to make it. Now, Netflix is making a similar project and somehow I'm listed on the IMDB page for that, okay. but I'm not part of that. My version was different and was at um, CBS All Access, you know, the mm -hmm. cable CBS. Mine was sort of a, almost a satire uh, And I think the version they're doing is is very straight on Netflix. Um, mm -hmm. 
um, a satire yeah. in, in what regard? How would that have looked? It would have looked a little bit like <laughs> a, a little bit like um, uh, what was the Cheney movie from a couple of years ago? Oh, uh, Vice. Uh, Vice. I mean, not quite that, you know, cutting away mm -hmm. to, to, to crazy shit, but a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. You know, these people were, were really, I mean, until the current administration of crazy, right? I mean, like, no, I mean, the people around Trump put the Watergate people to shame. You know, yeah. I mean, they're so... I mean, it is satire. Yeah, I mean, the, you, you can't you can't go anywhere with the Trump people because it's already ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one of the reasons why I think we didn't end up making the project. You know, because it's like <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to make satire when you're living through something significantly more satirical. You mm -hmm. know. Um, But, you know, the Watergate, there was a bunch of goofy people, you know, they were just goofballs and, and they were in way over their heads and it was just a clusterfuck. So there is a funny sort of dark comedy in the Watergate story. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think uh, we're living through such a even worse, darker version that I don't want to see it. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> There's no reason I would want to see a Watergate movie right now. You know, mm. uh, I'm just trying to get through the fucking crazy of today. Yeah. You know, yeah, I know what you mean. I just recently said, I don't know who I was talking to, but I said, well, the, the things that are happening now, they make Nixon look presidential in, in comparison I mean, yeah. this looks like he, he looks like a class act in comparison. You know, he had the decency to step back. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I could go on and on and on. Um, but but, you know, yeah. So so that that project is 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 dead. Mm -hmm. um, really, I'm, I'm focusing Masters of the Air um, is just enormous. The, the, the scale of it is enormous. Um, the point of the show is to show the scale, right? Like, like mm -hmm. uh, I, I can't really talk too much about it. I, you know, Apple has an NDA with me um, mm -hmm. on it. I signed an NDA, but, but it's not telling you too much to say that, you know, we sort of start with a group of people uh, around 1943 And at that point, you could send up a full mission would be about 80 B-17s, right? A massive effort. Everything we've got, let's throw everything we've got. And it's like 87 B-17s going over the channel. By D-Day, it's 900 B-17s. By... 45 it's 1300 b17s it would take hours for the planes to go overhead when they were passing mm -hmm. your village you know if you were living in i don't know nuremberg or you know hamburg or wherever and and if you were on the route it would be 90 minutes 
of planes <laughs> just flying and flying. And, I mean, the scale is unfucking believable. You know, mm-hmm. at the height of the war, at the height of the war, the American, the Americans had eighty thousand airplanes functioning. Yeah, it, it's it's impossible to imagine. Right now, we have maybe I don't know a thousand. You know, it's impossible to imagine the scale of the air war. It's going to be. It's really going to. It's really going to be fucking good. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I'm looking forward to it. That thanks, would be a good thanks. a good reason to subscribe to uh, Apple TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But my point is. You know, that's been consuming most, not not entirely, but most of the mm-hmm. last five years. Um, I mean, I did make that other movie, The, La- the Last Vermeer, um, that I took my name off of. But, um, and it's going to be two more years to make mm-hmm. Masters. We haven't started shooting yet. And because of the virus, you know, uh, mm. it's kind of, well, when will we shoot exactly, you know? So we're still figuring it out, but so I'll be working on Masters of the Air quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of my full-time gig for the next year or two, mm-hmm. and loving wow. every minute of it. I mean, really, like you know, when I when I worked on Band, I mean, it it really was the greatest experience of my life. You know, I mean, I'm a World War II nut, always have been. It it was amazing. I, I mean, it really was amazing. You would go on on the set and they they rented um an airfield about an hour north of london called hatfield it used to be an old raf airfield and it had several hangars we didn't use it as an airfield we used it as like a movie studio so the hangars were retrofitted for different purposes so like one hangar and i mean a big fucking airplane hangar you'd walk in and that would be vehicles so there's six tanks seven jeeps you know all these fucking cool cars or you'd go into another building and it was costumes and it was just you know and then another room armaments you know with all the guns it was just the scale was there was a thousand people working on it i mean it was just mm-hmm. insane and i thought i would never have that experience again and yet here i am about to have that experience again so mm-hmm. i feel pretty lucky in that regard mm-hmm. yeah you are lucky <laughs> yeah 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 that sounds like an amazing project yeah like i said i'm i'm looking forward to it I have this. I have this theory that um, this Band of Brothers episode, why we fight, mm-hmm. that's kind of like a the the essence of of your your stories. The idea of why is the thing that we're discussing in this particular story important? Why are we fighting for this? Um, I, I, I think I, I noticed a, a little bit of that, and and all of the things I've I've um, and everything I've seen that you've wrote. Um, Thank you. I, I think that's true. Thank you. I feel seen. (laughs) (laughs) I feel understood.
Bye.